specifically at verses 5 through 11, but I'd like to begin all the way back at the beginning of the chapter so we just kind of have a feel for what the Holy Spirit is doing in this part of the book. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And he quotes the book of Proverbs at this point. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God will deal with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. And furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present or for the moment, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage in your word. Thank you, Lord, as we thank you so often for the little thing, the big thing that it is intended to accomplish in our lives as your people, to deepen our understanding of you and your ways in our lives, Lord, things that we wouldn't understand unless you showed it to us. And thank you, Lord, for all that you do to deepen our relationship with you And now teach us, Lord, what these verses have to do with all of that in our lives this morning, bringing perspective to our lives and to our circumstances, and especially to our difficulties and our trials. And we ask it of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. These Christians are facing... Tremendous difficulty and trial as we've seen over and over again for their faith, for simply being disciples or followers of Jesus. And the trials and the persecution are so great that they're actually contemplating abandoning their commitment to Christ, not because they found something wrong with Him, but because they have discovered in the fallenness and the brokenness of this world that following Jesus means going against so much of what's happening in the world and sometimes virtually all that's happening in the world and that there's a price to be paid for that. And there's hardship and there's trial and there is persecution. And endeavoring to find relief from that, they are contemplating abandoning their intimacy of their relationship with God and indeed their commitment uh, to Christ altogether. And as we've seen continually in the letter, the writer of the book of Hebrews just simply doesn't allow that option to stay in their mind. And with some of the strongest words in the New Testament, he rebukes that temptation uh, powerfully and, and I think very, very decisively. And in chapter 12, the writer takes and he begins to liken the Christian uh, walk, the Christian life to a race. He is giving it athletic imagery, and he's liking it most specifically to a long-distance foot race. And he gives them very, very practical instruction 
for how to navigate this season of difficulty in their life and also maintain their faith in Christ. And as we've seen, he told them, and as we've read even this morning, he told them, number one, to come under the encouraging influence of so many Christians and so many of God's people, his saints, both Old Testament and New Testament, and to come under their influence and of completing the race that God had called them to. And that if they, being people just like you and I, were able in the power of the Holy Spirit to remain faithful to God in extraordinary circumstances, then we're able to do the same thing as well. He further told them that they needed to lay aside any sin and any weight in their lives that might be encumbering them uh, in, their, in their race and in their relationship with God. And then third, that they were to run their race, spiritual race, with endurance. And then fourth, as we saw last week, they were not to give in to the self-pity that had begun to take hold of their heart because of their difficulty of their circumstances for being a Christian. And in our passage here this morning, <clears throat> by the Holy Spirit, our writer informs them that God is not allowing anything of the difficulty of their current circumstance to ultimately work against them. But instead, he is overruling all of the persecution, all of the trial, all of the difficulty in order to train them and to produce godly character in their lives. That's the encouragement that he gives to them, to bring perspective to them. And what God was doing in their lives, he does in our lives as well. In my opinion, the key to understanding this whole section of Hebrews chapter 12 uh, on the chastening of the Lord and the discipline of the Lord, and it's one of the, perhaps the single greatest chapter, uh, section of Scripture in the whole Bible that addresses this important subject. The key to understanding the passage is understanding the word chastening there in verse 5. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Paideia is the word in, in the original language. The same word is repeated in its various forms no less than eight times in these seven verses. Chastening, chasten, chastens, chastening. Over and over again, he repeats it. Now, when we think of chastening or we think of discipline, we can think of it almost solely in our culture. We can think of it almost solely as something that is corrective or that it is pure punishment. So we're being punished or we're being disciplined for something that we have done wrong. But the word that is used here, it certainly can refer to that, but that's not the main thing that it refers to. Paideia, at its core, refers to instruction. It refers to training. It refers to discipline. And not all discipline is corrective. In fact, most discipline is not corrective. Most discipline in life is educational. It is, instruct, it is instruction. When I played basketball in high school and in junior college, very little of our practice time was spent in chastening us or punishing us because we did something wrong. Almost the entirety of the two hours that were spent at the end of the school day or, or, or whatever the time was in, in junior college, that entire two hours, almost all of that time was spent teaching us and preparing us for how to be successful for the next game how to be successful for the remainder of the season, how to prepare ourselves for the next obstacle on our schedule, how to prepare us for the next team we were going to play. And a lot of coaching and a lot of hard work went into preparing us to be successful for that next game and that next opponent and for the remainder of the season. The coach would identify weaknesses in us as a team. 
He would identify weaknesses in our game individually as individual players on the team. And then he would teach us how to improve those areas of our game so that we could be the best team that we could be and so that we could be the best individual players that we could be on that team. It is one of the responsibilities of a coach to see the potential in a team and to see the potential in the individual players on that team, the talents and the abilities that the athletes have that they don't even recognize that they have. And then to take those athletes and then to push them way beyond their self-imposed limitations and into greatness or what can be considered greatness in light of their talent pool. Now, the former coach of the Dallas Cowboys, Tom Landry, I would never quote a Dallas Cowboy except that he was also a Christian and he had a pretty good quote, by the way. But a great coach of the Dallas Cowboys when that team uh, was great. And he's reputed to have said, the job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. And that's the truth about coaching. And that's the truth about athletes. And this is exactly what our coach, the Holy Spirit, does in our spiritual lives as Christians. He knows exactly what he's built into your life. He knows the talents he's given to you, natural talents and abilities that have come. He, he's your maker. They've come from him. He knows what spiritual gifts he's given to you by his Holy Spirit since you've become a Christian. He knows the calling that he has placed upon your life and thus the potential of your life and my life for the kingdom of God. And so he will push and push and push and push us way beyond any limitations that we impose upon ourselves or allow others to impose upon ourselves. He will push us like any good coach through our natural laziness spiritually, through our natural tendency to drift toward undiscipline in our Christian life, and he will push and push and push until we become the very best Christian that we can become and until we achieve a sanctified greatness for the kingdom of God and for his purposes for our lives. And I'll tell you, I love this about the Holy Spirit. I don't regret that he's always speaking to our hearts, never letting us get away with anything, always allowing trials into our life to push us in to places that we would never volunteer to go and into circumstances that we could never believe that we could survive them if we ever found ourselves in such a circumstance. And he takes us there. And we discover as a result of it resources and character and joy and blessing in that place that we would never otherwise know. And the reason that this this characteristic of the Holy Spirit as a coach using the imagery of, of Hebrews chapter 12 is so important to me is in all of the years that I played organized basketball, I had many coaches, and each of them were very, very good men. But all of those coaches that coached me, I only had one coach. He wasn't even a head coach. He was an assistant coach. I only had one coach that pushed us hard and hard and hard and hard and harder still. He pushed us way beyond what we thought we were capable of. 
He saw in us what none of us could see at that young age or where we were. And He pushed us in order to make us play to the fullness of our potential. And I only had him as a coach for one year, my final year in junior college. And I'll tell you, I live with the fact that I never became the player that I might have become under different coaching or the player that I might have become if I had had him as my coach year in and year out except for one except for but the one year that I had him as my coach. And I say all of that to say this, that our coach, I'm not, by the way, I'm not wounded forever by that, but it made a, it drove home a lesson for me. And I say all of that to say that our coach in our Christian life, the Holy Spirit, will work to cause us to achieve our highest potential until when we leave this life, we walk off of this court and enter into heaven, we will know we left everything that He built into our lives on the court. We did everything that He called us to do. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. But there needs to be the recognition that the Holy Spirit will do that. And so life, and, and, and that's the only life, by the way, before I leave this point, it's only as an athlete walks off of a court or off of a field and they've left everything on the field that they can then live the rest of their life with no regrets about what happened on that field. And the same thing is true of the spiritual life. And the Holy Spirit works in our, a way in our lives that at the end of this, we won't have a single regret for how hard we ran or how hard we competed or how disciplined we were and what God had called us to do and to be. So life was very, very difficult for these Christians, no question about it. But more was happening in their lives than what their persecutors were doing. What they were not recognizing was what God was making them into through the difficulty. That's all they could see is what people are doing to me. That just dominated their thinking and what they were completely ignorant to. That's why he says in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation that what was happening in the physical realm was so great, it's all that they could see, and what they were missing was what God was making them into through the difficulty and how He was overruling all of man's intentions in the trial and making it to serve His purposes in their lives in order to produce holiness in their lives and in order to produce Christ-likeness in their lives. I think Joseph in the Old Testament is a great example of this in the book of Genesis. It's kind of his... Big season in ministry began with two uh, dreams that the Lord had given to him. And he had one dream that he was out with his brothers, and he had a lot of brothers, 11 of them. And he's out cutting down the barley or the wheat with them, and they were gathering them together and binding them into sheaves of wheat. And he said, this is what we did, and we all took and we threw our sheaves on the ground. My sheaf stood up, and all of your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. (laughs) It didn't take a genius to understand on the part of the brothers that he was indicating that God had told him that one day all of them were going to bow down to him, that he was going to achieve a greatness in life that they weren't going to achieve, at least a position of authority in life that they would never achieve. So they hated him for it. Then he had another dream. And the dream was of the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. And he told that dream to his father, his mother, and his brothers. And his father protested and said, Shall your mother and I bow down to you? And again, God was communicating that in his future... God was going to raise Joseph up to a position in life 
position of authority that would be greater than even his father and mother had achieved in the natural realm and certainly greater than his brothers would achieve. Now listen, receiving dreams and visions and then telling them to everyone, that's the easy part. (laughs) That's the fun part. But then comes the preparation for the fulfillment of those dreams and those visions, the preparation of our character for that. For the next 13 years in Joseph's life, God prepared his godly character through prison and false accusation, you name it, until in private, in an Egyptian prison, Just between him and God, God developed sufficient character in Joseph so that one day, and it would happen in one day, when he would be elevated into the position of the second most powerful man in the world, second only, excuse me, to Pharaoh, and ultimately become responsible for millions and millions and millions of people keeping them alive in spite of a great famine that was in that part of the world in that day. And when that day came to take that position, Joseph just very, very easily slipped right into it because God had prepared his character for it. There was no hiccup. He didn't have to go to summer school. He didn't have to take some kind of a remedial class to get caught up. In private, God had developed his character so that he would be successful in a day, successful in the position that God had planned for him ultimately and that God knew was going to be a part of his future. I think it's always important to remember that there is something harder than God's preparation of our character for future circumstances. And the harder thing, and God's preparation can be very, very hard, but the harder thing is to end up in the place that God has called us to be and to live for Him and lack the godly character to be successful in that position. That's the harder thing. And God will never do that to his children. And so he works tirelessly to prepare us and to perfect us for the next thing that he has in mind for our lives. And in this passage, the Lord gives us very, very priceless insights into what he is up to when he chastens us or when he disciplines us. Again, we think of discipline so often as being put in a corner and made to pay for something we did wrong. But the the root word of discipline is disciple. God's work in our life is never purely punitive. It is never purely just going to make us pay for how dumb we were in that situation. It is always to disciple. It is always to train. It is always to develop character. And so this passage teaches us about what he's up to when he chastens us, whether it is correctional or whether it's educational or whether it's training or whether it's preparation. You notice in verse 5 that he tells us that we're not to despise God's chastening in our lives. So he begins by telling us two things that we are not to do concerning God's chastening in our lives. And number one, we're not to despise it. Number two, as we'll get to in a moment, is we're not to be discouraged by it. Now, why would he bring those things up except for the fact that when God allows difficult circumstances into our life in order to train us, that by his experience, he knows that God's people respond in one of two ways. There are those that despise it, and then there are those that are discouraged by it. 
And he tells us first that we're not to despise it. And that literally means to think lightly of it, to uh, be careless about God's training or to treat it as insignificant, to treat it lightly. Now go back to my coaching story from my junior college assistant coach. He pushed us so hard. There were members on that team that didn't appreciate how hard he did push us. They weren't excited about it at all. And they despised it. And they began a campaign behind his back of murmuring and complaining. And a couple of them even went to the head coach and asked him to tell the guy to back off. After all, he's just an assistant coach. Made my heart sink because I loved what the guy was doing. They didn't want to be as good as they could be. And they wanted ease and they wanted comfort more than they wanted greatness. I'll tell you, there's not only a lot of basketball players like that and a lot of athletes like that who will never know their potential. There's a lot of Christians like that where God puts us in a difficult kind of situation or position and the only thing that person can think about is what is the easy way out of this. I just want an easy, non-difficult life that lands me one day in heaven. And so there's the despising. That's how a Christian despises the chastening of the Lord, just like what these Hebrew Christians were thinking about. Those that despise the chastening of the Lord, they actually have done what these Hebrew Christians were thinking about. And, and so whenever uh, uh, hardship comes into their lives or being faithful or obedient to the Lord results in some kind of difficulty or trial. They just simply compromise God's commandments as necessary in order to escape it. But the problem with that kind of approach is that this kind of person never allows God to develop the godly character in their lives that God knows they will need in the future. The future is always coming. The Bible says God sees our life as a tale that's been told. He knows what's coming. And if I disregard His training and preparation for the future by despising it, the same things in life are coming. But I will find myself completely unprepared for them. And it's the one thing God does not want to have happen to His children. So He develops our character for a future that He knows is coming, but we can't see yet. And we rarely think about difficulty in that way. We think, I'm mature enough to get through my circumstances right now, so it must mean that things are never going to get more difficult than they are. I won't need any more godly character or depth of character or depth of relationship with God than what I have right now. I can ride this out all the way into heaven, and God knows better. And so when we despise His chastening and we avoid what He's trying to teach us because we want comfort and we want ease, we're only setting ourselves up for disaster in our future. He tells us, second, that we're not to be discouraged by God's chastening in our lives there in verse 5. Now, that's completely the other end of the spectrum, isn't it? This is the kind of person who interprets every kind of difficulty in their life as a personal rejection from God. They take everything personally. They personalize it. And so they personalize every event in their life and they believe it to be a clear revelation of God's attitude toward them personally. So if everything's going well, then it means that God loves them. And then when problems hit, it must mean that God is upset with them and that they're in the doghouse. And the problem with that attitude is that a lot of what happens in life isn't initiated by God. 
He promises to work it together for good and overrule it for his purposes. But God was not the originator of the persecution that these Hebrew Christians were facing. That came from the world. That came from the flesh. That came from the devil. It was no reflection upon the heart of God at all that it was occurring. And so if I conclude that God's upset with me every time something difficult happens in my life, then I'm going to misunderstand Him as being against me a good part of my life, and it will lead to discouragement. And so he tells us that instead of being discouraged by all of this, verse 6, that we're to realize that God's chastening is always an expression of His love for us. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And it's not always a group hug (laughs) in the Christian life. But He's a heavenly Father who loves us enough to require the hard things of us that will produce maturity in us and prepare us for adult life. And I'm glad he's that kind of a father. Those of you who are parents, you know the easiest thing in raising a child would be to say, just put them over there somewhere, give them all the games that they want and the television and the whatever, and let them raise themselves. doesn't require any effort at all. We pay a terrible price for it, but it doesn't require any effort. But when a parent looks at a child, brings a child into the world and then looks at that child and then sees themselves in that child, feels sorry for them for the gene pool. (laughs) I feel bad for my kids. And why don't we let them just turn into the human being that their natural tendencies would turn themselves into. Why do we get up off of the couch over and over and over again? Why do we say the same things over and over and over again? Why do we not give them any wiggle room in this situation because there's no negotiation on that, even though all of their friends are doing it? Why do we do I'll tell you, every motive in our life as parents will be tested and burned off as inadequate for withstanding the demands of raising children with character except the motive of love. Where we look at that child and say, I love you too much to let you win here. And because I know the price you'll pay if you do. Or I love you too much to allow you to be introduced into adult life in this world without the necessary character to navigate what is required of an adult in the fallenness of this world. And it is love that makes us do what no other motivation would make us do in the raising of our children. And it's the same thing with the Lord. He chastens us. He disciplines us. He prepares us because of the greatness of His love for us. And I want you to notice, too, in verses 7 and 8, that His chastening is also an evidence that we are His children. Somebody says, I'd like a plaque instead, or a certificate is an evidence that I'm His child. Can my baptism certificate suffice for that. The Lord says, no, no, I'll give you a very clear evidence of the fact that you are my child by virtue of the fact that I stay very engaged in your life in training you and disciplining you. And he does it. I can't get away with anything. (laughs) He's a good coach because he knows everything. He sees everything. I can't get away with anything. And he takes that role so 
seriously the role of a heavenly father. In the ancient world, it was fully expected that a father would take the responsibility to chasten and to shape his son. It would have been a shame upon the father if he didn't do that in the ancient world. And, and so that was, I mean, the last 50 years, everything has changed, you know, in terms of how fathering and how it's viewed and all of these things here today. But that was an evidence of a, of a father. That was an evidence that you, we were his children by virtue of the fact that he would take that responsibility and that he would discipline us. And chastening is the responsibility of the parent, isn't it? Perhaps you've been somewhere. You don't have to go too far to experience it. Go into a restaurant or into a store, and a child is just throwing a fit. Not because uh, of their immaturity or they're tired or that's one kind of fit. (laughs) Then there's the fit. With the kid that's got the hand, toy in their hand and finally the parent has to say no to them for maybe the first time in their life because they can't afford to buy the toy. The child is not walking out of the store with that toy and he or she does not know what no means in their life yet. And so here is the fit, down on the floor, face beat red, screaming at the top of their lungs, thrashing like crazy. You look at that child, all manner of temptation fills your heart. <laughs> you say, I know how to deal with that. And why don't you deal with that? Because you're not the parent. It's the responsibility of the parent. If I was in that same place, I was in a restaurant and one of my children was misbehaving and someone came over and spanked one of my daughters. Ooh, that'd get messy. Of a messy situation. Why? Because someone had entered into my role and my responsibility. That's the responsibility and the privilege of the parent. And so when God disciplines us, it's a way of Him communicating to us that we are His children. And, and, and the Lord uh, loves to do that, and, and he takes that position as a father, as a trainer, uh, very, very seriously. And far from uh, the fact that it, it should ever discourage us, it's intended to be a comfort to us. I think about how many of Boys and girls today, uh, don't, they don't have a father in their life. Or if they do have a father in their life, he's completely absentee. And so you get raised, and so many have been raised, and now the percentage is even greater in the younger generation. And if you've never had a dad, or you've never had a good dad, you have one now <laughs> in your heavenly Father. And he knows how to make up for lost time and what should have been built into our lives as children but was never built into our lives. I think about how many people today, God is going to be the only rescuer for so many in these generations because they're so completely ill-prepared for life. And the only one that's going to be willing to take those children on and invest the kind of resources as quickly and wonderfully, and can I use the word professionally, perfectly, in their lives. The only one that can do that and rescue a child by introducing a dad into their life and all of the things that a dad was supposed to bring into their life and never did is God himself. And the beautiful thing is he's up to it. He's able to do it. And it is a wonderful thing to know him as a heavenly father, to have him as a father, 
and to know that we have his attention and that we are a priority to him. Notice in verse 10 that we're always to remember that when he chastens us, it's always for our profit. It's always for our profit. He says concerning our earthly fathers, they chastened as seemed best to them. And sometimes our our earthly fathers chastened us as was was best for them. (laughs) They they just wanted to deal with the problem. It didn't have anything to do with discipleship or training or anything. It was a, you know, a good smack and stop it. So their motives, human motives aren't always perfect, and sometimes earthly fathers can be wrong. But our Heavenly Father, the writer tells us, and he wants us to know it, his discipline is never unjust. It's always right, and his discipline is never unnecessary. Why am I going through this? It's necessary. Why do you allow this into my life? It's necessary. He's developing a character right now that you are desperately going to need one day, and he loves you enough to develop that character. You and I can write, for my profit, over every difficulty in our life because he's our heavenly father, and he will work it for our profit. And so maybe a situation comes to your mind this morning that you're in, and you can whisper to yourself, that's for my profit. Maybe some person or some situation that's difficult that's going on in your life. Say, why is this happening? You can write above it and whisper to yourself, that's for my profit. Because that person is not in charge of the situation or in charge of my life. God is in charge of the situation, and he's working things for my profit. And what is the profit? He tells us very, very clearly the profit is that we might be partakers of his holiness, of God's holiness. And since Jesus is the embodiment of holiness, the writer of the book of Hebrews is simply saying that the Father is doing all of this in our lives in order to make us more like Jesus, which is the greatest life a person can live and is the highest desire and priority of a spiritually-minded child of God. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that God is leading us into through His discipline and through His training. Now, notice in verse 11 that God's chastening isn't always fun, and it really can be quite painful. But he said afterward, and there is an afterward. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained or disciplined or trained by it. So it's for our profit, he tells us, in that it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in my life. In other words, it will result in a harvest of righteousness in my life. It will produce a righteous life. God disciplines in our life in order to produce a righteous life in us, a Christ-like life in us, and then out of that life of doing what is right will come a life of peace. We have a whole world that's looking for peace independent of righteousness. You can't have peace independent of righteousness. Peace is a byproduct of righteousness. You don't skip that step, not successfully. Peace is the byproduct of righteousness, the righteous life that God is producing in us through His discipline. And what is that peace? It is the peace of knowing that I am right with God no matter what is going on in my life and in the world all around me. And that's a valuable peace to possess as a human being. And the craziness of this world and this life and our own individual lives and then speaking of the world as a whole. Someone has translated verse 11 this way. Those who have endured in the school of discipline receive the reward 
of a stable character. Oh, let me just stop and glory in the Lord for a moment. You have no idea how unstable I was before I came to Christ. Those who have endured in the school of discipline receive the reward of a stable character characterized by a deep peace of mind and soul and how we need it. God is always doing a work of preparation in our lives. He's always developing the godly character today that he knows we are one day going to need in our future. We don't know that we need it now. We think we're godly enough to handle anything that's in our future. And God knows better. So he allows the trial and the difficulty to teach us things there because he knows what the future is going to bring. And these Hebrew Christians, they were only looking at the physical of their circumstance. This is hard, and how can I make it unhard? Rather than realizing that God was going to overrule all of their difficulty and all of their trial as fierce as it was and to use it to develop a deep and beautiful Christ-likeness and spiritual maturity in their lives. And I think it would be a good idea for us when we are in some difficulty in life that we are desperately wanting to escape to look beyond the physical circumstance of the difficulty that we're in and then to ask God, Lord, what godly character are you desiring to develop in me through this? What godly character do you know that I will need, but I'm not aware of it yet? Lord, what part of what's happening in this circumstance right now is all about you developing a character in my life that you know I'm going to need a week from now, a year from now, 20 years from now. Because if the Lord allows these kind of things into our lives, he's up to something, and that something is always good. The big thing in any difficult situation we're in is not what the people are doing, but what is God doing? And what God is doing is always very, very good. And having that perspective, seeing God beyond the circumstances, His purposes beyond the, behind the circumstances that He allows into our life, that brings us perspective to our difficulties that can change everything about how we view our trials and the difficulties in our life. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purposes. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, very famous verse in the Bible. God works all things together for good in our life. Well, then we go set about defining what that good is. And almost always, because our world is so materialistic, we think that, all right, this circumstance is going to end with me being wealthier than I've ever been or an upgraded car or this or that or that kind of a thing. We think materialistically. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he goes on to speak about what that good is that God is doing when he speaks of being conformed into the image of Christ. I, won't, I can never properly understand Romans 8.28 
And it's the famous verse, but verse 29 is the forgotten verse. But I can never understand verse 28 without also understanding verse 29, that the good that he is doing is the development of our character. And the highest degree of character that anyone can possess is the character of Christ. That's where life is found. That's where beauty and peace and joy is found. And that's what he is overruling all of the circumstances of our life in order to produce within our lives. It's a beautiful thing that he's doing in our lives. But it's also a needed thing, as time will reveal. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, we give you praise for this passage of Scripture. We would be so in the dark about your ways and your goals and your thoughts concerning these challenges in life and trials in life and these seasons of discipline and training in our lives, Lord, without this revelation, Hebrews chapter 12. And we just give you thanks as your children for the perspective that it brings and the peace, Lord, that it brings and the gratitude, Lord, that it brings to our heart knowing that you are this kind of a heavenly Father. We praise you for that this morning. Thank you, Lord, for being our God, but also for being our Father. Thank you, Lord, for all you do. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your love, Lord. We stand in awe of you this morning, and we just give you thanks, Lord, for the joy and the privilege of being your children and knowing a heavenly Father like you, and to be the object of your workmanship, thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.